Good morning and welcome to Abundant Life Church. Do you know what they call two days of rain in a row in Oregon? The weekend. It's great to have you with us and a special welcome to those that are at our Sandy and Vancouver campuses, those watching online. And we're continuing our series called God Never Said That. Pastor George kicked off the series by looking at uh, myths that are popular, religious myths, especially in our culture, but he started off by talking about God won't give you more than you can handle, and then God wants you happy. And today we're looking at another myth. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That was really lame. You guys should know better than that. As long as you're sincere, that's right. And it sounds pretty good. It sounds broad-minded and tolerant. It feels good that our God is so loving and so big that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. I like to call that feel-good theology. And a corollary is related to it. All roads lead to God. Basically, all religions are the same. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And perhaps uh, you can recall this uh, item from pop culture. It's uh, Linus from... Uh, Charlie Brown, the Peanuts comic strip saying, saying this, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But the context of this actually comes from the cartoon, it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, where Linus believes that the great pumpkin is going to visit the pumpkin patch that's the most sincere. And so that's, this is when Linus says this. And so he actually talks Sally, who's Charlie Brown's sister, and has a crush on Linus into sitting in the pumpkin patch on Halloween night. Of course, the great pumpkin ends up being a no-show. Linus is disappointed, and Sally is ticked because she misses out on tricks or treats for nothing. But actually, the cartoon is meant to demonstrate the fallacy of this, that, you know, that this is not actually correct. Sincerity is a good thing. I'm not advocating insincerity. Sincerity is great. But it has to be based on truth. That's the point. The mere fact of believing passionately doesn't make something true. I heard of an office worker who tried to demonstrate to his colleagues that the windows in their offices were unbreakable. He sincerely believed that he could slam the full force of his body uh, up on the windows of the 36th floor. He was so sincere that he backed it up with an actual demonstration. Unfortunately, he was wrong, and he won a Darwin Award as a result. But see, sincerity alone doesn't make it so. Any visit to a mental hospital will prove this to be false. What's important is the basis for our belief. Is it based on a firm foundation or not? Is it based on truth? See, wrong ideas don't get better simply because we believe them passionately. If you walk out onto a frozen lake... Because you believe the ice is solid enough to hold you, what's most important is the actual density of the ice, not how much you believe about the ice. And for example, and I can remember back in the day uh, when I lived in Alaska, we'd go ice fishing and we'd just drive a Suburban right out on the lake because the ice is three feet thick. Get an auger and drill a hole and go ice fishing. But I can remember on one occasion, it's getting toward the end of April and it was a warm sunny day. It had been warm for a long time. And my buddy and I, he just drove his Suburban right out into the lake. I said, well, how do you know when the ice is no longer safe to drive on? He said, well, when you see a hole about the size of a pickup truck. (laughs) So here's the deal. It's not the amount of our faith that's important. It's the object of our faith that's most important. 
Tim Keller puts it this way, a strong faith in a weak branch can be fatally inferior to a weak faith in a strong branch. In other words, so we talked a little bit about sincerity. Well, let's take a look at the first part of that phrase. It doesn't really matter what you believe. Again, this is the corollary of all religions lead to God. And make no mistake about it, America is a melting pot. People from every conceivable ethnic and religious background come together to form one nation. We live in a nation of religious pluralism, and every religion needs to be treated with respect and with deference. The First Amendment states that there be no established national religion. All religions are guaranteed freedom of expression and for equal treatment under the law. At the heart of our national sense of identity stands the principle of religious toleration. And perhaps, but perhaps you've seen this bumper sticker around. It's... You know, it's one of my favorites um, because the problem with religious to- uh, pluralism is because tolerance is taken to mean more than just equal treatment under the law. It's taken to mean equal validity according to truth. And so, in other words, and this is in your life notes, tolerance is a good thing, but it doesn't mean that every religion is equally valid or truth. Because if you take a look at the religions that are... Dem- embodied in the bumper sticker, the religions do not teach the same thing at all. So it's okay to protect the rights of people to follow the dictates of their conscience religiously, but that's, and that's toleration, but that doesn't mean that they're all equally true and valid. In the field of comparative religion, books like The Essence of Religion attempted to get to the basic core of religious truth, that which is common to all religion. Religion was reduced often to its lowest common denominator philosophically, that's called reductionism. And frequently, it was captured by the phrase, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of mankind. And if you examine both those carefully among all the religions, they do not teach the same thing on those things. But, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But the premise is all religions basically teach the same thing. Uh, perhaps, and this gave rise to, rise to the famous mountain top analogy where God is on the peak of the mountain, mankind is at the base, and all the religions represent various roads, different ways, but they all end up uh, at God. And I've talked to people who say something to that effect that all religions are equally valid, but even though they don't know anything about what in, the individual religions teach, they're adamant in saying that all religions are the same. But the statement, all religions lead to God, cannot possibly be true. For example, how can Buddhism be true when it denies the existence of a personal God, and at the same time, Christianity be true when it affirms the existence of a personal God? Can there be a personal God and not a personal God at the same time? Can Orthodox Judaism be right when it denies life after death, and Christianity be equally right when it affirms life after death? Or classic Islam endorses the killing of infidels, while Christianity teaches love toward enemies. When it comes to the subject of how to deal with those who disagree with you, Christianity and Islam do not teach the same thing. And so pluralism, the view that all religions are equally valid and true, is problematic because the defining beliefs and doctrines of different religions contradict each other. It's not that we don't know what each other teaches, it's that contradictory claims cannot be simultaneously true. And our job then is to find out which religion does the best job at explaining humanity's ultimate reality. And so that's why I don't want to talk negatively about other religions. That's not the point of this. It's to talk about what makes Jesus and Christianity distinctive. What's special about that? 
If you watch daytime talk TV, you can talk all day long about spirituality, about a higher power, and there's no controversy. When is there controversy? When someone brings up the name of Jesus. You can talk all the live long day about God or a higher power, nobody wigs out. But the moment you talk about Jesus, that's when things get really interesting. And what's fascinating is this, almost nobody questions the existence of Jesus. Even his detractors admit that he really did live some 2,000 years ago. He was a real person in history. So what makes him unique? Well, first of all, consider the teaching of Jesus. His teaching makes him unique. And what's interesting is that people love his teaching. He is acknowledged as the greatest teacher ever. Give to the poor, love your enemies, forgive those who hurt you, love your neighbors yourself. His teaching is phenomenal. Even if you hate Christianity, it's virtually impossible to hate his teaching, except for this part. See, his detractors don't debate his existence. It's difficult to question the power and beauty of his teaching. But here's where everybody gets so upset. It's John 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Boom, there it is. See, it's this exclusive claim of Jesus that gets everybody rattled and bent out of shape. And it sets Jesus apart from all the other world religions because it's so narrow, it's so rigid. It's this exclusive claim that he is the only way to the Father. And that's the part that people in our culture stumble over and have a difficult time with. But you see, that's partly the nature of truth. Truth tends to be that way. Truth tends to be pretty narrow. For example, if you want to call my cell phone, there are 10 numbers that you're going to need to dial. Not nine. 11 won't cut it. It's got to be 10. In addition, it has to be the exact number in the exact sequence. Now, my phone service provider, you can say, well, it's so narrow. It's so intolerant. It won't allow just any random selection of numbers. But see, that's the way it is. If you want to get a hold of me, you got to dial the correct number. And see, because the bottom line is this. It's an issue of truth. It's not an issue of preference. One writer says this, I think that's a great point. He says, forgive me for stating something so obvious, but there is a difference between choosing an ice cream flavor and choosing a medicine. When choosing ice cream, you choose what you like. When choosing medicine, you have to choose what heals. And many people, though, think of God like they think of ice cream, not like they think of insulin. In other words, they choose religious views according to their tastes, not according to what is true. The question of truth hardly even comes up in the conversation. I've heard it said this way, in the beginning, God created us in his image, but we have since returned the favor and created him in our image. See, that's the problem that we wrestle with. And it's this exclusive claim of Jesus where people stumble. Now, also notice, important safety tip, I'm not the one who said it. I didn't make it up. I didn't come up with it. This is a claim of Jesus. So, you know, I'm just the messenger. But Timothy Keller points out, he says, to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. Does that, make, does that belief make any sense? And C.S. Lewis continues, he says, if you'd gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, you are still in the veil of illusion, my son. If you'd gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you'd gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would have first rent his clothes and then cut your head off. 
If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven? He would have replied, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. See, the idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. So even though Jesus was the world's greatest teacher, you cannot just say that that's where it ends. Because a great teacher does not claim to be God if he weren't. weren't. Well, number two, consider the ministry of Jesus. Mark 2, verses 16 and 17. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now notice who he was eating with. Sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees could not for the life of them, wrap their brains around this because in their religious system, that would make Jesus unclean. And he was a rabbi. He was a teacher of the law. Certainly he must know that. So they ask his disciples, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus hears that, and I love his response. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous. Who has he come to call? Sinners. Sinners like you and like me people who can't get it right, people who aren't perfect. To those that everybody else in religious systems despised, he loved and accepted. When a woman was caught in adultery, he offered forgiveness. When he encountered people who had been born blind, he, he opened blind eyes. He healed deaf ears. He turned water into wine. He fed the multitudes from just a few loaves and fish. He walked on water. He raised the dead. That's all part of the ministry of Jesus. And here's what's so crazy is that his critics did not question the validity of his miracles. That that never happened. They just wanted him to stop. Stop doing what you're doing. They actually saw the miracles and wanted him to stop. See, and the amazing thing about the ministry of Jesus is that it continues to this day. Recently, my wife went to a doctor, she has serious sleep issues. She was given a battery of tests. And one of the tests came back showing that she has a defective gene which makes her prone to Alzheimer's and high cholesterol. And apparently there's a correlation between those, or can be. But after looking at her cholesterol numbers, the doctor said, I'm not concerned about your Alzheimer's because your cholesterol is gonna kill you long before you get Alzheimer's. And she actually had another doctor say, your cholesterol is so high, it's going to give me a heart attack. And she'd been experiencing chest pain anytime she did some moderate physical activity, and she loves to hike, so it's become a problem. So she went to a cardiologist on a Thursday, and he's prescribed an angiogram the following Monday. But on the way home from the cardiologist, she started to develop really intense chest pain. And the cardiologist had pres- prescribed nitroglycerin, so she said, don't take me home. Would you go pick up the prescription now? I need it now. So I said, yes, ma'am. So I went to the pharmacist, and he gave me the nitroglycerin. And he said, now take one of these every five minutes for a maximum of three. If three don't help with the chest pains, call 911. I thought, that sounds pretty serious, but that's what I'll do. So I gave her two, and chest pain went away for a bit. So she thought, well, let's go grab a bite to eat. And on the way, though, the chest pain came back with a vengeance. Gave her another nitroglycerin. That didn't help, so I said, I am taking you to the hospital. And by this time, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and traffic is just slammed in every direction on the freeway. And at one point, uh, she actually looked at me, and she said, am I turning gray? 
And I've been an ambulance driver, and I said, no. But I thought to myself, if you were, I'd be driving like a maniac on the shoulder of the road by now. She asked if I was going to call the ambulance. I said, no, I can get you to the hospital way faster than an ambulance can in this traffic. So I uh, got to the emergency room at the hospital, and, and uh, actually, and even on the way in, she was saying, well, maybe it's just indigestion. I said, no, it is not indigestion. And once in the emergency room, she went to the front of the line because of her symptoms, and within minutes had three tests, an X-ray, uh, an EKG and, and blood test. And those tests revealed that she hadn't had a heart attack yet, but the cardiologist said, we're not going to wait till Monday for an angi- angiogram. We're going to do it tomorrow morning. So I said that, you know, and everybody knew, the cardi- cardiologist, ER doctor, everybody knew that you know, she had blockages and was probably going to require a, at least a stint. Um, so, but while she was there visiting the, with the cardiologist, she actually put her status out on Facebook and, uh, and shortly after she did that, the chest pain went away because literally hundreds of people began praying for her. So she had an angiogram the next morning, and after the, afterward, the cardiologist told me, she said, he said, she has the heart and arteries of an 18-year-old. There is no blockage anywhere. I know how, how amazing. I, that, I did not expect that. And so I said, well, what about the chest pain? He said, well... It's just not related to anything serious or her heart. And the cool thing is she hasn't had any chest pain ever since. But how does that work? I mean, she has high cholesterol for a number of years. I mean, crazy high cholesterol and no buildup of any plaque. You know, how, how come she... Doctors don't have an explanation, but I think I do. You know, it's God, right? The ministry of Jesus continues to this day. And I love what Timothy Keller says about miracles. He says, we modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death, or high cholesterol in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it's broken. His miracles aren't just proofs that he has the power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we long for is coming. Isn't that cool? Lew Wallace was a general, a Union general in the Civil War. And after the war, he was appointed the governor of the territory of New Mexico. So he governed that territory in the days of Billy the Kid and the Wild West. But Lew Wallace was raised a devout skeptic and he set out to disprove Christianity. But the more he studied, the more he convinced he became as true until he became a follower of Christ. And then he later devoted his life to writing, and he's best known for a historical novel that he wrote, perhaps you've heard of it, called Ben-Hur. See, and Lew Wallace wasn't just a better version of his old self. He was a new person. He was a different person. The old has new, the old has come, gone, and the new has come. Consider the ministry of Jesus. He is still transforming lives to this day. And then number three, consider the resurrection of Jesus. God loves you, but he hates sin. That's why Jesus went to the cross and became sin for us. And on the cross, the creation mocked the creator. He was beaten and flogged beyond recognition. He had spikes driven through his wrists and through his feet, hanging on an instrument of torture. And Jesus' response was to look to God and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And three days later, after he was killed on a cross, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. 
Jesus wasn't there. And shortly after that, on the day of Pentecost, Peter put it this way in Acts 3, verse 15. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of that. Now circle that phrase, God raised him from the dead, because that is foundational to our faith. It's crucial, but also underline, we are, we are witnesses of this because there are eyewitnesses that saw him dead and then saw him alive again. See, the tomb was empty. That, friends, is an established fact of history, a stubborn fact that just doesn't go away. Now, the $64,000 question is, how did the tomb get empty? How did it get that way? Skeptics and critics will say, well, Roman soldiers probably stole the body. The enemies of Christ would have loved to produce the body of Jesus to prove that he had not risen. Patrick Fairbairn says this, you find the body of that Jew and Christianity crumbles. Well, other people say, well, the disciples stole the body. So you're going to tell me that the, these disciples who be after the crucifixion are running and they're hiding, fearful for their lives. But then somehow they muster the fortitude and the expertise to overpower trained armed and armed Roman soldiers. Now, do you expect any rational person to believe that 11 small-town, uneducated, average men devised the most elaborate scheme and hoax in the history of the world and pulled it off and kept it a secret, all with no motives for personal gain and everything to lose personally because all but one died for their faith? They were eyewitnesses. See, the tomb was empty, and by itself, that doesn't necessarily prove the resurrection, but if you combine that with the appearances of Jesus then what you have is powerful historical evidence, the kind of evidence used in a court of law to, dis, to establish truth, to establish the resurrection of Jesus is the only and best explanation that fits the evidence. Jesus was not dead. He is alive. Can someone say amen? amen. Even among disciples, there was doubt. Thomas who said, said I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. So when Jesus shows up, he says, Thomas, touch for yourself. See for yourself my side and my hands. And Thomas went on to become a great evangelist to India. When asked to renounce his faith, he said, I can never renounce my Savior. And because of that, he was speared to death in India. So why would someone who doubted give his, give his life? Because he'd seen the risen Christ. That makes all the difference. We are eyewitnesses of this. You killed the Savior Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Consider the resurrection. See, I'm not asking you to consider the church. I'm not asking you to consider Christian culture. Those are imperfect. Consider Jesus. See, Buddha never claimed to be anything more than a man. Muhammad never claimed to be anything more than a prophet. Moses and Confucius were mere mortals. But Jesus claimed to be God. The French skeptic Voltaire put it this way. He said, gentlemen, it would be easy to start a new religion to compete with Christianity. All the founder would have to do is die and then be raised from the dead. See, the resurrection validates his claim. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then he has credentials that no other mortal has. Buddha is dead. Muhammad's tomb is occupied. So is that of Moses and Confucius. But according to the claim of Christianity, Jesus is alive. And see, none of those men were also qualified to offer their lives as atonement for the sin of the world. 
See, it's not only the resurrection of Jesus that makes him unique, but his death puts him in a class by himself. His death was made as payment for the sins of the human race. See, the cliche that goes, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, involves a devastating error. Because we can be sincerely wrong and miss the redemption offered by God through Jesus. And what we believe makes a difference when it comes to our ultimate destiny. Consider the ministry of Jesus, his resurrection, and now I want you to consider the message of Jesus because it's the difference between religion and relationship, the difference between works and grace. Consider the grace of Jesus. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 in the voice. For it's by God's grace that you have been saved. You receive it through faith. It was not our plan or our effort. It's God's gift, pure and simple. You didn't earn it. None of us did. So don't go around bragging that you must have done something amazing. So that phrase, God's grace, because that's the difference. This text explains that we're saved. We receive grace through faith. It's not through works. We're made right with God when we place our faith in Jesus. See, it's no matter what you've done. Anyone, anyone, anyone who places their faith in Jesus will receive God's grace. It's not Christ plus good works. In Jesus alone, we have eternal life. In Jesus alone, we have forgiveness of sins. In Jesus alone, we get a new heart and a new destiny. See, I'm not a big fan of the word religion. Religion is humanity's attempt to be good enough to get to God. But the, the story of the Christian faith is that God reaching down to us, not us reaching up to him. In a 2014 interview, Bono, the lead singer of U2, said this. And I thought this was amazing. He said, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. And he's right. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In physics, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts the consequences of your action, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. He continues, but that's between me and God. But I'd be in deep, in big trouble if karma was gonna be my final judge. I'd be in deep weeds, only doesn't say weeds. It doesn't excuse my mistakes but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out did not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap death. That's the point. It should keep us humble. It's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. If only we could be a bit more like him, the world would be transformed. When I look at the cross, what I see up there is all my weeds and everybody else's. So I ask myself a question a lot of people have asked. Who is this man? Was he who he said he was or was he just a religious nut? There it is. That's the question. See, Jesus didn't come to create a religion. He came to show us the love of God. And our God loves us so much that he took care of our sin problem on the cross and I think it's human nature to think, well, it's good, too good to be true. It's not too good to be true. Because no person will come up with this idea of a God who'd become one of us and die in our place. 
That's why it's called the gospel. The gospel means good news. It's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A.W. Tozer said this, said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And mankind's spiritual history will demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Jesus came for broken sinners like you and me. The tomb was empty, and people were willing to die because they knew he was alive. The message is simple, and yet it's the most beautiful and compelling message in the history of the world. You're made right with God, not because of your good works, but because of the grace of Jesus. Again, it's not about church or Christian culture. It's about Jesus. And so I'm going to offer you an opportunity. If you've never given your life to Christ, you can do that right now by praying along with me. And if you have given your life to Jesus, I'm going to also ask that you pray out loud. So will you join me in prayer? Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I believe you are the Son of God. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. Thank you for making me a new person. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, would you let us know by indicating on a connection card and putting it in the offering bucket as it's passed by in just a moment. But now we're going to go into a time of communion. And Jesus makes another extraordinary claim in John 6, verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He is the bread of life. He is our sustenance. He is the source of our life is what he's saying. I heard a story about a missionary who spent many years living in Cambodia and he had a prison ministry and he'd go into the prison, this dark place and tell, tell the prisoners about Jesus, about his life, his miracles, his death and resurrection and, uh, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so these men professed interest and belief and began to follow Jesus there in prison. So the missionary decided that they, they're gonna have a communion service for the prisoners and so he brought in a cup filled with juice and a, and a baguette of fresh bread. And he took the loaf and he broke it and he uttered the words that Jesus did at the Last Supper where he said, this is my body given for you. And he tore the bread in half and handed it to the prisoner on the right. And then he held up the cup of juice and referenced Jesus again. He said, this is my blood which is shed for you. And as he passed the cup, he knows something strange happening. He'd grown up in America where people, you know, he were used to people taking small hunks, you know, just little pieces of bread and dipping it in the juice. Well, here in this prison, these Cambodian prisoners were taking huge chunks of bread, so large that after several prisoners had received communion, there wasn't any bread left. Well, this kind of, you know, ticked the missionary off a little bit. He was a little bit disturbed by that. And so he asked the first few men, why had they taken such large pieces of the baguette when there were still other prisoners that hadn't had any communion waiting to receive? And one of the men spoke up, voicing what they'd all been feeling. Now, of course, they were, they were on the verge of starvation, but it wasn't physical hunger that made them do that. This prisoner said, you told us this bread was the body of Christ, and we want as much of him as we can get. And they all nodded in agreement, and the missionary realized that they were right. And he went out and got more baguettes. He said that was the best and truest communion service he had ever experienced. And I love the heart behind that. Don't settle for a religion when you can have a relationship. 
Don't settle philosophy when you can have a person. The Christian faith is all about Jesus. He is our life. He is our source of life. He is our everything. And so when we come to the table today and we take these symbols, this is a time of celebration. This is a celebration of the resurrection. Jesus is alive and he gives us life. He's the source of our life. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for your gift of grace and for your invitation to life. And as we celebrate today with these symbols, We say thank you for life. In Jesus' name.